I, has anyone ever conducted an interview that way where like we would stand around someone famous and you would ask me questions about them? <laughs> <laughs> no, if this gets picked up for a, for a web series, we should. See yeah. Can we do that? Can we do It'll be like our, it'll be like between two, fir- yeah. between two herbs. <laughs> exactly. But we just have a conversation about someone while they sit there and listen. Yeah. That's a great show. And we get some, at least one camera just trained really close in on their face to capture yeah. certain reactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have to get a good live director because we obviously have to do it live to tape or just live to live to the test. internet. Yeah, exactly. That goes uh, out live. And, and they, so they have to be calling those, calling those shots in the booth. Yeah. Have you ever done that? Uh, only with students, never in a, in a real high stakes situation. Yeah, well, I am certainly not high stakes. I did it a couple of times in public access and it is even there absolutely nerve wracking. Oh, I bet. Uh, yeah, the Maybe stuff even my... more so because like that's somebody's labor of love and yeah. they're getting paid to do it and you're right. in charge of making it work. Yeah. So, yeah. If you're doing like a late not, night show, it's like me. they, they all have a system they go on if you're on public access it's just everyone is it's a total crapshoot live to tape multi-camera directing (laughs) terrifying not for me no i i think that's a good choice that's what i respect about you jason you know what you shouldn't be doing Jason. Jason. Yeah. Jason. Synesthesia to me is uh, it's a true definition of the mixing of the senses. What makes synesthesia exciting? It takes us all the way from just the mingling of the senses all the way to metaphors or even transcending the senses where you are, are no longer constrained by the tyranny of individual sense impressions. Jason, what are you talking about? <laughs> Synesthesia, a movie podcast featuring Jason Mikhailich and Jim Hickox, begins now. Pull the There we go. There it is. Sound going picking. Well, I'm also recording. Mm-hmm. Yep, 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 yep. Okay. So, I have no idea what my audio is going to sound like on this because... It'll sound like you're I've in a car. I've done minimal... Well, I meant with my recorder and microphone setup. I've only done minimal testing with this. Oh, I see. Sure. But I just... I have a... Uh, a shotgun mic strapped into my seatbelt with me <laughs> right below my mouth and it's plugged into a little like portable digital recorder is is it under your seatbelt like it's seatbelted yes. to your chest yes you've tested it before and it wasn't just like <laughs> every time you moved 
No. Yeah, okay. No. Weirdly, I don't know why not. That's but great. We'll see if it is this time. Yeah, maybe it will be. But the last time I did it, it produced audio. That's really funny. We'll see how that goes. Uh. Um. Inferno today because of your uh, your last article you wrote. Oh, really? That's and a nice thing to say. I and now I, I'm, I need to watch. Um, I mean, I kind of don't care about the actual third movie in the trilogy, but I want to watch Tenebre. 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 Yeah, no, you, um, you shouldn't which, care about the actual third movie. I always it's thought Tenebre was the third. I didn't realize he never finished until so 20 years later. So did I. Yeah. And I actually, I because like, originally I meant to like work that be. into the piece, but I just couldn't quite make it flow. Um, like, I couldn't I couldn't work it in there in the time that I had, yeah. but originally I was going to say, like, I, I always thought it was, especially because the name... Yeah, yes, it's named goes after along the other... with, with modern... Mother. Um, what a weirdo. So it, yeah. It's super weird. Yeah. And it functions, like, to me, it functions as the third in the trilogy. Yeah. Like, I just sort of assumed it was, and when I watched it, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> like, there's no actual mother in it, but right. it makes sense. Right, right, right. And, this, and then he was like, no, 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 this is this is something completely different. I'm like, oh, you're wrong. <laughs> you don't know what you've made. But what also, it kind of feels like, taking them in order, it's like Suspiria is very directly about a woman who is being who's in a house that's overseen by this witch um, yes. and then fights it and murders it. And then the, uh, Inferno's like, it's that witch's house and she's maybe there. Although honestly, I don't b- fully believe that she's ever actually in that building during the movie. And then at the end, a like a screaming skeleton waves its hands confidently as the building burns so it doesn't right. it feels it feels 20 times more abstracted it's not about murdering a witch anymore it's about being in a building where there is witchly power so for the third one yes. to just be in a world where these witches are in are ruining things with their existence yeah, it's just like metastasized yeah, it feels into like it's the just the entire society yeah. and that's what the movie feels like I'm gonna watch. when you watch it and it is like it just feels like oh yeah all of rome is yeah just done and by even extension in this one, it's because like, it's yeah it's like in Suspiria the witches are doing witchy things and then in this one it's like there's that one scene where that dude is putting a bag of cats into water and a guy in a chef's outfit yeah. just runs at him and knifes him in the deck you know and you're like yeah. that has nothing to do with anything else that's happening no not at all it's honestly just like a the, separate the, murder I don't. I don't think the underwater scene even takes place in the house. So it's like this other. It's oh like yeah. Just another space in that's sort of nearby. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, yeah. So I and, and that's what I love about it. Yeah. Um. Like actually, when the the actual third movie gets very. Like, there's a scene where Udo Kier shows up as an old priest and just, like, explains exactly what happened in the plots of the last two movies. Oh, no. And how it ties into this movie. I'm just like, oh, this is this is the wrong choice. Yeah, that's too bad. He was an old man. Yeah. 
And that, that is, because I was confused when I was looking online. I was like, how do people understand the end of Inferno as the house killing the witch? Like, yeah. I don't... Visually, there's no reason to think that. Narratively, there's no reason. I don't know why anyone would think that at all. Yeah, so th- that was confusing to me. But then when you watch Mother of Tears, Udo Kier says it very blatantly. Oh, really? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> there was one witch in Freiburg. A dancer named Susie Banyan was able to murder her. Then there was another witch in New York, and they put a house on her. Oh, like, wow. Like, all right, well, at least it's Udo Kier, so the right. scene's not all bad. But you're also like, Udo Kier is crazy enough that he might be mistaking that second witch for um, the Wicked Witch of the West. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man, oh, we should do a movie where there's, like, a really old, insane witch hunter. Yeah who convinces all these people to hunt witches with him, and then as he keeps telling the story, it becomes more and more apparent that he's talking about the witches from The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) I love that. It would be a And then they have to decide whether they're going to keep trying to... Oh, no, I'm going the wrong way. Here we go. They have to decide whether they're going to keep uh, following him or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) They're like, well, he's so charismatic. (laughs) I, I do feel like being on this witch hunt is the first time in my life I've been appreciated and done something useful. Yeah, but on so the other like, hand, we're definitely murdering people. <laughs> and he just and watched it's a really movie. like not efficient to kill them by dropping houses on them. Yeah, super hard to do. Yeah, we can call it the house droppers. It, in that movie, though, uh, only the first witch is is uh, is weak to houses. The second witch is only weak to water. You could have thrown as many houses as you want on the, the other wicked witch. I assume. That's a good point. Yeah. Is, or a good question. It's Are one which was weak to compression. Are vulnerable to houses and water, or... Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe that's the thing they have to find out. I guess if you started testing that, and you were just attacking people, they would all be vulnerable to houses. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. So you would pretty quickly... If a house quickly. crushes them, they're away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wouldn't take long to conclude that that would work consistently, I think. Um, yeah, so the, the the actual Mother of Tears, it, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Like, I, I did come away being like, it really was, you know, like, it was a solid try. Sure. And it's it's pretty nutty. Like, what one of the things that I do like about it is that the conceit is that, I guess, I mean, it's a Dario Argento film, so the plot's impossible to follow, yeah. really. Yeah, but that's not the, what he cares, The conceit but. seems to be that uh, they dug up a body with a cloak or something near a church okay. and then that brought the mother of tears back um but then the she's just basically making everybody in rome go insane 
okay. and start murdering each other. Okay, that sounds but great. But it's not ramped up to at all. It just goes straight into it. So you're like kind of following along this movie about Ozzy Argento, uh, like you know, trying to figure out why her friend was murdered when they were looking at this artifact. It's weird uh, for but- him to cast his daughter. Oh, dude, you have no idea. Like the amount that, whole, that he, That's a whole saga. The amount that he ogles his main actors. It's... Uh, yeah. Well, then you also get into her actual, like, biography and yeah. what she says about it. Where she's like, my father was never home, and it really, like, destroyed my life. And I became an actress so that he would pay attention to me. Oh, no. And so then, because she was like, because I actually hate acting, I think it's the most obscene thing you can do, but, you know, I was able to get into my dad's movies when I was 16, and then he became my father when he became my director. so So, tragic. It's so upsetting. Um... But she's good in the movie. Sure. Like, she's... I like her. She's really good. Um... And uh, so, but but it's like sort of a. I, I, it's not understated because it's still sure. Argento, and like a woman gets strangled with her own intestines in the first <laughs> scene. Okay, but but it is like it's localized. Okay, it, like it's all this, these characters that we've met going through these things, and then all of a sudden it just smash cuts to everyone in Rome killing everyone. Wow! Like it's just like just jumps into it, and you're like, okay, like Romero's like, the this crazies, is but the last act at the beginning. Yeah, and it, but it does have that effect. It's it's that that has that little hint of what is good about those earlier films, which is that it's just it really puts you ill at ease. You're just like, sure. oh, whoa! I don't. This whole world is nuts. That's um, and like before he did it with style, and it was much more interesting. Yeah. But at least with this, it was like, all right, it, it's still there's still something there. Is do they go? Do they spend time in the building in Rome, the like house in Rome that was built for that mater? Oh yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it really does get way too uh, like plot concerned oh, in terms of like wrapping it up yeah like it's very much trying to be like here are all the ideas i had that originally inspired me to do this but i'm older now and i'm working in a completely different film industry that has a whole like you know because it doesn't really look like you think of argento films because it looks like a more modern film so there's things about it that look like an argento film but you kind of realize that like he only looked his films only have the character that they have because of the people and the technology that he was working with at the time and now that he's working on newer films, he's like, oh, well, I'll just adopt, you know. Sure, yeah, why wouldn't he shoot And I, I'll yeah. have people who have been trained as cinematographers more recently. And, you know, so there, there's, you can see choices he's making that are his. Sure. But then it also has this whole sheen of, you know, a movie made in the aughts. Does, it, um, does the architecture of the house feel like, because for me, it's always super striking that, sort of all of the artistic flourishes in both of the main houses are are so similar which makes sense but um but it's so distinct that space uh that yes. it's funny that both houses look like that yeah you don't really so you don't actually spend too much time in the house, oh, house part of it you see the outside of it and then you're in catacombs underneath it oh uh, okay um and so it's not yeah and and again, it like 
they make a lot of it in terms of paying lip service to it in the plot. They make a lot of it of the architecture, and she actually goes and finds the alchemist who built the houses because he's still like alive because he's an alchemist. Um, and you know, talks to him, and then sure. they talk about the architecture and everything. But it never actually plays out on the level of style the way it does in those first two films and the way it does I would argue in Tenebrae it's just in Tenebrae it's not the architecture of the houses it's the as I said the the brutalist architecture of 1980s Italy sure which is just stark already like you already feel like someone's soul is in danger looking at those buildings (laughs) to begin with and then the way that they're used in the film you believe that this is a film where all morality has just slipped away uh, and and everything is is you know plotted and blocked out and controlled by the mother of tears. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. So, um, you, you know, can, if you you have a whole thing you want to talk about. <laughs> oh, so I have you read this article that's going around? That it's not an article. It's an interview with uh, Nick Cage with I think the New Yorker. Mm, I don't think it's the New Yorker. I think it was either the Times or the Post. I think, you're I think the it Times was the Washington Post. Post, and that's why I haven't read it, because I don't <laughs> have access to the Post for free. Fair. Uh, and I, I don't like giving Jeff Bezos money when I yeah. can help it. No, that's so. correct. That's a correct opinion. Um, well, maybe, also, I could be wrong about that. It maybe we should wait until another one, and you should read it first. Okay. Or, do you, or should I mean, we I, just I, launch I, in? I'm definitely, well, I want to hear what you have to say about it right now. I'm trying to, I'm just looking. Oh, it is the one that I read. There, I think there might have been a couple. The one that I read is called Nicholas Cage on his legacy, his philosophy of acting, and his metaphorical and literal search for the Holy Grail, and it was in the uh, the New York Times. Okay. Um, but I do think there were a couple that came out in the last couple of weeks. Um, and well, it's it's a it's a decent um, interview. It's a decent interview with uh, you know with an actor. I I was there are a couple of things I was thinking about when I was reading it, um, and one of them is that I think. I don't know. I, I don't know what order to, to jump into these things. I, I think that I think that Nicolas Cage is on the butt end of a thing that is relatively common where people who watch films and maybe people who uh, deal with art of all kinds, although I've never heard anyone really talk about music or like paintings this way, uh, or books. I don't know. Maybe it's just a film thing. I'm not sure. I'm not that smart. Uh, I think a lot of times people who are, who are watching a lot of movies think that they are smarter than the movies or the people who make them um and i know i've gotten i've gotten that in like uh podcast reviews of my films people have been like oh it's funny that this thing is happening but the filmmaker definitely didn't know he was doing that it's a thing he did by mistake and i'm like that's my joke you're claiming credit for Um, so i know it happens uh and i think it's relatively common and in in this particular interview there's a there's a section where um the interviewer is asked Asking Nick Cage. I, for me, most of the joy of this of this particular interview is it's the guy's kind of just asking, asking Nicholas Cage about choices he's made, which is interesting because I think I think that we have a limited number of actors in now the future that we live in who who approach acting from sort of the idea that that most 
characters in most films are going through things that are more extreme than the average person and reacting in kind and are going to do whatever they have to do to push their portrayal of the character into being someone who would do the things that they're being asked to do in the script, if that makes sense. Uh, and I think Nick Cage... Yeah, and so you'd say, like, embracing a certain... Because all, all moving acting, movie acting is, is heightened to a certain extent. Because, of course. You know, the and I, extreme yeah. situations, extreme drama, but but as a, rather than just modulating uh, to be, like, an extreme version of a normal person, somebody who embraces extremity as a quality. Yeah, and I think, like, Bill Paxton, I think, is that kind of an actor. Um, and uh, uh, who's that blonde guy with the teeth? He's in uh, Point Break. Um, I think that guy does it. Uh, and I think Nick Cage does it. I think that those are... I think there are other people, for sure. Uh, those uh, are just... Swayze? No, no, no. Blonder and bigger teeth. Flea? I don't remember. Uh, wait, hold on. It's, um... Oh, 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 no. Gary Busey. Yeah, Busey. Busey. I think Busey sorry, does I it. forgot. Yeah, sorry. No, I was no I was stuck in different scenes in Point Break. Yeah, it takes a minute to get to him being sweaty in a car. Uh, when you're going through the movie in your head. Uh, yeah, so I think I think that, for me, I think that what is exciting about Nick Cage is that he... I mean, two things. I think that he is is going to try to find a way to make his character the person who would do the things that, that are written in the script, where I think a lot of people are like, how can I be a guy that you would see in a coffee shop, but also do these things, you know? Um, and, I, and I also think that he's always trying new things, you know? He didn't. He hasn't, like, figured out a way he likes to act, and he just does it, uh, which is yeah. fine. It's fine that a lot of people do that. But I, I think that as a person who... I think that once you decide that you've figured it out and you're going to stop experimenting, that's when that's when your legacy begins to wane, right? I think, like, I think P.T. Anderson made three movies where he really pushed himself hard, and then he decided he figured out what he was doing. I know people might not like my opinion. Um, oh, we can have a conversation about that. <laughs> now, I don't want to know right now what those three movies are, but we can talk about it later. Oh, I'm talking, like, numerically. Uh, <laughs> I, and I think that there are a lot of careers you can look at where... Uh, sorry, I just kicked my microphone. I think there are a lot of... Oh, I did it again. Hold on. <laughs> What? Shifting. Why? Wait. I think your foot that close to your face. No, 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 sorry. I kicked the thing that is holding my microphone. Oh, okay. Um, it, imagine a microphone like on a table. Yeah, yeah. I uh, somehow like contorted up to kick it. I was holding a sandwich with my toes uh, and eating it while I talked. I, I think that. I think that there are a lot of people whose careers you can look at where you're like, oh, they really were great for their first few things, and then after that, they they really started to, like, wane. And I think that, for me, most of the time, when I have that opinion, and also, actually, well, I don't know, I think a lot of times when I feel that way, it is because it's someone who who got comfortable doing what they were doing and stopped pushing themselves, and so their movies stop having sort of interesting, uh, interesting facets where they're not fully comfortable, right? And I think Nicolas Cage mm-hmm. is, again, I think he's one of those people who's like he's gonna be but anyway to come back to what i started off saying there's one point in this interview where the interviewer asks him if uh he asks him about a word in a movie it's a film i hadn't seen but there's some word he says and he just holds out a vowel longer than a person normally would (laughs) and nick cage says that he had been listening to a lot of stockhausen and he was trying to like channel stockhausen and create some kind of a vocal dissonance in that moment that he thought was appropriate uh and the interviewer says uh i'm not going to quote exactly because i don't have it pulled up, but 
Uh, he says something like, is that really what you were doing, or is that just an excuse that you made up later? Which, to me, seems like an insane question. Why, like, does he, does that interviewer prefer to think he lives in a world where where an actor is just going to make random choices and then come up with excuses why he made them later? Or does he prefer to live in a world where an actor is trying things? Like, only one of those makes sense to me, even. I, it just feels like a crazy... I think that that approach of... I see what you're doing, and I understand it, but you don't. Seems like an insane way to consume media to me. Okay. Yeah. I mean, okay, so I'm going to try to play a little devil's advocate. Okay. Um, although Lucy always says, devil doesn't need any more advocates. It's true. Devil's got plenty. Advice. Yeah. Um, he's, he's taking care of it. No, uh, so, so I gut, gut level generally agree with you, but uh, I'll try to, to push back in different ways to try to <laughs> crack this nut. Yeah, um, let's crack this nut. So, so not having read the interview, uh, I don't know how I'll, I would... Next time I'll email you things I want to talk to you about. <laughs> well, we didn't know we were here. No. We, we had a plan and then we didn't do it. Yeah. Um, uh, so it, it might not be that the interviewer prefers to live or thinks that he lives in a world where people don't think about what they're doing, but that I, I, I can imagine a space in between where an actor who thinks about a lot of things and is trained and practiced and done a lot of work in the moment might be working more instinctively and then later think to themselves, why is it that I did it that way? Sure, so but is that different? not saying that they made up a reason. It's not, not saying that, like... I, and I know, however you put it, like, was that just an excuse? Um, but I, I don't... Like, maybe maybe there's a little tone in there, the way they ask the question, where they didn't mean it in quite the dismissive way that it comes across. Sure. And that maybe what they're really asking, or what they meant to be asking, what they should have been asking, was, were you thinking about that before you did it? Or were you thinking about that afterwards and trying to figure out why it was you made that choice? Mm. That that was the influence that you were processing, but didn't necessarily know it in the moment. Because you, you don't want to necessarily think that they're having uh, all of these sort of calculated thoughts in the moment, because, you know, acting is is very much about being present and making instinctive sure. choices. So. Maybe there's something there. I, I mean, I guess I would hope they rehearsed. You know what I mean? I For me, mm-hmm. an actor, part of being in the moment is having spent a lot of time processing each bit of that moment as a little, as a little tasty morsel, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I... I'm going to see if I can find the actual question so I can... Okay, wait, here. I've... Okay. The, the guy asks, um, you're really saying that in the moment you wanted to achieve a Stockhausen effect? This is not a rationalization you've come up with after? I don't know. For me, that that reads like he's being kind of shitty. But, but maybe that's just... Yeah, no, maybe that's me reading that question. Well, know. again, I'm also... I'm, I'm constructing my own character over here. In, in general, I probably agree with you. Um... But I don't know, I mean, I didn't... 
Weren't there a bunch of neuroscientists who were who were finding out that everything we do is essentially instinctive and that all of our reasons are rationalizations afterwards the only real <laughs> choice we have in life is uh what we what we meditate on and create as habits so that in the instinctive moment we act the way that we've sort of prepared ourselves for that just we sounds like actually have the neural capacity to think about it in the moment those feel like the same thing to me <laughs> you train your neural pathways and then you react instinctively i feel like that's the same as making a choice yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I agree. I think, actually, I mean, again, if those neuroscientists are right, it is actually the definition of the choice. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's how we make choices. We don't actually make choices in the moment. We make choices by working on ourselves and preparing for that moment when we have to make the choice. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and that, I think, is what Cage is doing. And whether the interviewer knows it or not, maybe he's getting at something there uh, about the difference between preparation for instinct and the like, direct calculation. Yeah. Like, the, the question could become, and again, I don't think many of you end up actually asking this, the question could become, in that moment in your head where you're thinking, I will now do this to achieve a stockhausen effect. Probably not, because that would be ridiculous. That would be a crazy thing to think about, yeah. And it would also just be so laborious. That's not how the brain works. Sure. You know, but was he, as you said, thinking about that in rehearsals, thinking about it when he read the script, thinking just about Stockhausen noises? Yeah, is it just a thing he was doing in his life at that point in time? See, now, I think you should be asking the interview questions, Jason. You should be working for the New York Times. Oh, I said she meant I should just be following the Pedro. No, I mean, sure, yes. Uh, but I'm, I'm just saying I think you're a better interviewer than this guy. I'm sure he's fine. He's fine. I just well, don't like that one question. Yeah, no, no. I, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know if I've, if I've worked on myself enough to be able to uh, actually come out with that question in the moment. Well, if fair. I'm there in front of the cage. <laughs> but uh, it's what I've come up with. I've worked on myself enough that I can come up with it talking to you. Yeah, great. So you should talk to me uh, with Nick Cage standing between us. It's like, uh, it'd be like Monkey in the Middle interviewing. I've had that dream. Where you... <laughs> make you relive your article you just wrote but can i ask you more about your your sort of you can op- ask me about anything you want your, your like opening thesis on it was and i i feel like you explained it but i didn't fully understand it was you were kind of talking about uh hitchcock um sort of eschewing it's also written very quickly so i may not have been as clear as i could have been i think i think you explained it but i think i wanted examples because i didn't fully get all the things you were saying you were talking yeah like hitchcock sort of like eschewing human emotion to yeah. assert control and then how sort of hitchcock uh dudes who like want to make hitchcock movies have pulled from that and like i i believe that brian de palma has pulled from hitchcock in every way that he could right um Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, he's the most obvious one, yeah. right? But but for him, I can, like, look at his movie and I can be like, oh, he's he's using, like, he's using the shots and the motions and the same wigs. You know what I mean? It's like a yeah. very literal 
copying. Um, yes. And I can kind of tell, I think, what you mean when you're saying that that Argento sort of takes sort of takes the the Hitchcockian mode and makes it the metaphysics of his of his world but I don't think I fully get it and I was wondering if you could I don't know explain yeah, it to me no, like I'm, I'm a well, three year old well so like the easiest one to probably use as an example from Hitchcock is like Rear Window right okay. like Rear, Rear Window if you read it and it, and it has been read this way by people if you if you read it um, uh, the way the plot tells you to read it yeah then it's this movie uh, that has this you know incredible diversity of of you know uh experiences in it because there's you know it's the whole city out his window you can see into all of these apartments and it's this expansive world uh where you know that he you can have all of these different stories intertwining but then if you actually to me if you look at it on a style level it's the most Locked down, closed off world sure. that's ever existed. In, right, in that it's, it's just so, that one bedroom, basically. Yeah, well, it's a, it's not one bedroom, but even when you're looking out at everybody in the windows, like they're all in these boxes and they're all performing just like semiotic functions. Yeah. They're not people, right? So it, it's it's this world that is entirely it's a you know it's a backlot world, but a lot of worlds are backlot worlds, and there are some directors who take backlot work black. <laughs> backlot worlds and imbue them with humanity. Yeah, but Hitchcock makes them more backlot than they even would be. I see. Right? Like he he's so meticulously constructing where everything goes and ha- what everything means just on a symbolic level. Yeah, and to do that, you have to, as I said, like kind of sacrifice the the actual you know it's a lot of what we were talking about with with people like fincher sure right and that's sort of why i included fincher like fincher is so into control yeah um and and control for the sake of producing very particular effects in his movies yeah yeah yeah, but it 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 squeezes out the space for life and i wonder if that's i so i i feel like so with hitchcock i watch his movies and they feel like they are um I'm a little hesitant to say this but they feel like they are like they have almost more in common with theater than with film just in terms of sort of the way he is presenting things where it does feel like it's like we're moving from thing to thing and we see them all from the correct spot um yeah I think that that has some uh validity but I but when I watch a Hitchcock movie I feel like that's how he's doing it. it feels like a very sort of classical and baroque those are two different periods of music but i think they work together here <laughs> uh, it's like a classical and baroque way to sort of to be like here is the story you know it, it feels like he's yes. he, like he's being a real storyteller and telling it to you but when i watch a fincher movie and to be fair i've seen three of them and none of them for a while um i feel like he doesn't think he's doing that or he doesn't I feel like he thinks he's giving you real humanity do you think I'm wrong about that say say the last part again and you blipped out right after thinks Sorry. he's doing that I get the impression that David Fincher thinks he's giving you humanity well I think that he I I mean I I think if you ask Hitchcock he might well you know Hitchcock was self-aware enough that he might have kind of understood 
that he wasn't. But I also know, you know, there's like all those stories about he's like, all right, I'm writing a movie. I need an airplane chase and a man flying through a mountain and a gong. Right. Like he knew he was presenting you with spectacle uh, and and sort of grandiose melodrama. Yeah. Yeah. Do uh, do do I think that Fincher is as self-aware as Hitchcock? No. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think that, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to speculate too much into what he actually thinks he's doing necessarily, but I, I do think that what he wants to do is, what, what he does want to do is he wants to deliver the story in that same way that you're talking about with Hitchcock and he wants to do it in the most, you know, uh, it's a, it's a tricky term to use effective way sure. right I always I yell at my students Efficient. for using that term because they always say like oh yeah no that was effective that right. worked I'm like okay but what does that mean yeah, yeah, like yeah. what does it work at doing um, but I actually think for, for something like this it actually is just the all that matters is that it is effective in that it it works on you right. it makes you jump it makes you lean in it makes you worry um, so it it's it is sort of the right term for that uh, because he's not doing more than that. Right, right, um, right. But, I, and I think he just also, Fincher exists in a, in a post-screenwriting manual world. <laughs> not that there weren't screenwriting manuals before, but I mean like popular screenwriting yeah, manuals yeah. Yeah. And, and like screenwriting magazine and all of that stuff. Sure. And so you have this whole... Uh, I don't know what to even call it, but the, the, just the, this generation of of filmmakers who have been brought up believing that, like, if you write a good Hollywood story, then by definition you're talking about people because you've made characters sure. that people care about and you make them feel things. And it's like, well, that doesn't actually mean you did, you created people. It right. just means that you found the right buttons to push. Um, but that it, that that ideology, I think, is at root in... 99% of Hollywood films and Fincher's no different. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, where he is different is in the is in the level of control he exerts over the films to create certain effects that I, you know, I cannot deny are effective in the ways that he intends them to be. <laughs> sure. But I don't care that much about them. Yeah. yeah and the, yeah. the the film actually that would be that's interesting to look at is Panic Room. Okay. Um I because that Panic movie Room since high school. Um, yeah, I forget exactly when it came out. I guess it probably came out towards the end of like 2001 or something. I don't know. Um, Maybe not but high it, school. It's actually <laughs> one of the Fincher films I like well enough. Sure. Is it because, because of Dwight it, like, Yoko? It's pretty entertaining. Um, like really good actors. It's it's pretty straightforward, but it's also like 45 percent a remake of Rear Window. Oh, interesting. Um, in terms, not in terms of plot, but in terms of shots. Okay. I like because so there, much of it is Jodie Foster in a room looking out. Yeah, and there's also the the courtyard at the end where the guys getting caught by the police is like the courtyard from Rear Window, oh, and there's all of these things in it. So, so it's his most Hitchcockian film, probably. Sure. Directly, yeah. But I think the the idea of control and the idea of this this coldness that you know bleeds out humanity. In in pursuit of certain effective, you know, shocks or excitements, 
carries over into other films. Yeah. It's also why I didn't bring in Kubrick because Kubrick is cold yeah. and Kubrick is intensely controlled, yeah. but he's after something else. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's after some actual human something. Yeah, or even if he's not fighting for he's he's fighting for some kind of understanding. Like he yeah. he's working to to try to produce something you know, whether you want to call it philosophical or whether you just want to call it intellectual. And it's one of the reasons why I'm not as high on him as I used to be, because I value that a little bit less sure. than I used to. But it's still something different than just, I want to scare you. I want to move you this way. I want to do that. Like, he's he's after something. He's got bigger fish to fry. And that's, you know, and he's a little bit more, uh, I think... Individual in his alienness and coldness. Yeah. Well, yeah. His the Hitchcockian. His coldness. Moves. I feel like the the coldness that you're describing with Hitchcock and Fincher is an artistic coldness, and with Kubrick, it feels like that's just who he is. It feels like yes. in the way that everyone sort of you can through their art, you can see a person's humanity. I feel like the amount that you're seeing Kubrick's humanity is the coldness of his films. Yeah. Um. Cage came up and we mainly spent the time talking about whoever the New York Times reviewer is. Well, I just didn't like that As question. As opposed to what, the, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I think he makes good choices. I think it well, probably would become no quickly no secret that he is both of our uh, one of our favorite actors. I, and I guess that's, I think that Nicolas Cage is undergoing a huge resurgence right now. This is maybe the most uh, accurate thing for us to talk about in this format, uh, which is us being confused about people doing things uh, internally, which is the, I think he's going through sort of a renaissance, and I think a lot of people are excited about him right now, but I think a lot of people are excited about him in the way that I think that that interviewer's question was getting at, which is that I think that they are like, ooh, he's a wild card, he's bonkers, he doesn't he just he's does a, stuff. He's a really baffling figure to most people. Yeah. And, and it's because, and they do it out of a place of love. Of course. But it's also a place of, of just also not entirely respecting what he's doing as yeah. an art. Yes. Respecting it more like, it's like a, a spectacle. sideshow. Yeah. Agreed. Of like, oh man, this guy that makes crazy choices. And it's like, you know, the definition of a genuinely great artist is somebody who makes choices that seem crazy to everyone else because that's, you know, that their brain, their nervous system that they're imprinting on the work. I also, this should maybe be an assignment for us sometime in six months. We should go through <laughs> several of the movies that people sort of uh, are in love with where they're like Nicolas Cage, super bonkers, and just look at his choices and break them down. Because I don't, I think that there are a lot of times where you're watching things he's doing and you're like, oh, that's kind of bonkers. But I don't think I've ever watched a thing that he's done that wasn't in the last few years and thought, I don't understand why he's doing that. You know, I think his choices are a little outlandish, but I don't think they're ever 
unfounded. I do think in the last six or seven years, because people are getting excited about him, I think that people have been kind of making movies built around him being a wild card, you know? I've seen a yeah, couple... Did you, I've did seen, you see Mandy? No, I've avoided Mandy, because I'm sure I'll hate I him. Because I think it's someone being like, oh, I know, I'm going to use Nicolas Cage to be a Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage, 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 and I don't want to watch that. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure I'll see it at some point. I watched one at a festival last year that was like a low budget thing where the plot is it's like uh, this uh, he was in love with a woman and she died and then this uh, like 20 year old lady oh it's like the he like remarries someone and then that woman's daughter says that she's the reincarnation of his first love uh, and and everything goes crazy and it's like you're like I don't know it's just it's that it's like someone being like I have an okay idea it's kind of campy I'm gonna get Nicolas Cage and I'm gonna be like go crazy and then he will yeah it, it takes all yeah, the joy I, I out of it yeah I don't know I, 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 I too have avoided Mandy I, I haven't even really watched any previews or clips or anything like that I've, I've heard people talk about it and I'm just like right on the edge of feeling like this might be a wonderful experience or yeah. it might just really make me sad it feels too it feels like it someone feels is canned. like intentionally making a campy Nicolas Cage romp <laughs> yeah <laughs> which seems like a terrible thing to talk down about I guess but I, right like we should be so lucky yeah um but it does it does feel like Oh, and I mean, it feels that, like that, parody. That, that, it feels that like parody. Back to that experience of of the room versus other people's experience of the room. Like yeah, I I don't think Tommy Wiseau is anywhere near the artist of Nick Cage. I think he's he's a bad artist. Sure, but I think that he is his own artist yeah. in a way. Yeah, the things that are good uh-huh. about that movie are him trying to do something that or makes not, sense. Or just removing good and bad from it. Just the things that interest me about ever sure. watching it. Sure, are the things where I'm like, how what brain thought of that and felt like that would speak to other people yeah and what does that mean about what he thinks about other people and about human relationships whereas i i do think and that a lot of people who watch the movie have somewhat similar thoughts Mm -hmm. but it it just it's a slightly different emphasis and maybe i'm splitting too many (laughs) here but it feels the same way with cage yeah i mean you know I've, i've spent years and years and years telling absolutely disbelieving people that my favorite actor is Nicolas Cage. Sure, yeah. And they're like, he's terrible. Because, yeah. I mean, for two reasons. Partially because he's in so many... He's in a lot of stuff. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, the guy got a tax bill, and he had to be in a lot of stuff, and he sure. doesn't always show up for every role. Of course. You know, there, there are a lot of movies where he's not that interesting to watch. Yeah. But... When he actually shows up, when it's Vampire's Kiss, when it's Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, yeah. when it's Raising Arizona, oh yeah, um, you know, when, I, even even when it's Face Off, like I mean, when he shows Moonstruck, up, Moonstruck, yeah, Valley Girl, there's like yeah. I he has I I he's done what a hundred movies, and I would say thirty of them are iconic. <laughs> sense hitchcock is just um he's he's too smart for his own good yeah for sure and i mean all these dudes are right 
Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. But, like, he, he's too smart for his own good, and he's found this thing that he's really good at. Um, and he's... You, you just... With, with Hitchcock, you get the sense of somebody who is just being kind of a dick all the time. Yeah. Like, he's just being really yeah. smarmy about things. Yes. And he's like, look what I can do over here. Look what I can do over <laughs> here. And it's that same kind of droll wit that's in the character he plays at the beginning of yeah. Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yeah, exactly. But it's, it's just played out at length in style. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it, it's notable that some of his... Well, you know, I, I was going to say some of his better movies don't exactly do that, but it, it, it's mixed, right? Like, I think Vertigo is amazing, yes. and Vertigo is probably the least smarmy of yeah, his films. Yeah, um, it, it, It's probably the most emotional of one of his films. Yeah. Um, and part of that is Jimmy Stewart actually really getting For sure. some meat to chew on. Uh, but part of it is, too, because it's just... It's such a weird, doomed movie that doesn't really make sense like it, it's one of those things where the where rationality breaks down again and like there's an explanation for the plot but it doesn't really even make that much sense yeah. either yeah yeah, yeah. and it's, the end is so abrupt it's basically and so, like it's surreal that whole film yeah like he's he's moving way further into tone yeah. there than he is in the plot um and uh I mean Psycho is not that far off from that either. I think Vertigo's a stronger film, but sure. uh, but but Psycho's also just sort of you know dismantling uh, dismantling plot mattering mm-hmm. to a certain extent, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. But then there's also things like uh, the um, oh, what's the name of that goddamn film? The one where they find a dead body in the woods. Damn, Shirley MacLaine's in it. No. Uh, uh, oh, is it The Trouble with Harry? Maybe. I've only seen like half of Hitchcock's movies. Yeah, so, so The Trouble with Harry is this great movie because it's just a really smarmy black comedy. Oh, okay. Where like people find this body in the woods and it's like, oh, we have to hide this body. And okay. it's just sort of like a comedy of errors, but it's a really mean. It sounds great. Um, and that's one where I think is one of his better films, but is drawing completely out of his smarminess, but it's because he's leaning into it. Yeah. He's yeah, not yeah. making like, here's a here's a movie where you're supposed to like the protagonist and everything sound, you know, is feels great, but I'm also going to do all of these things where I poke you. Yeah, well, um, that whole movie is just him. He makes one big poke. Yeah. It is the plot. He's like, yeah, sure, exactly. get it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then it, it's it's better for it. Yeah. It's sort of it's sort of like how Coppola is better when he just lets all of his weird oh, sensibilities right. run amok as opposed to trying to pull it back to something that, you know, resembles a, something cl- more classic. Restrained Francis Ford Coppola is so boring. Yeah. Give me Rumblefish any day. Somebody sent me the other day a video from some 80s movie uh, that just, I, I had no idea what the title was, no idea what was going on. Wait, does he show up with a nose? Yeah. I watched it. It's called Never on Tuesday. I watched it on the strength of that one shot. Did it hold up? Because I, I was going to do that too. <laughs> it is okay. It's not a terrible <laughs> watch. It's The whole movie is those other three people broken down in the desert bonding, but then a string of people come through and they're all 
they're all like famous, interesting people. You know, Gilbert oh, Gottfried sells them something. I don't know. It's Nicolas Cage is definitely the highlight of that movie. Sure, sure, sure. But also that would interest me way more if that was an isolated choice to just have him drive up in a car and say a couple of lines and then leave. And then the whole rest of the movie is just those people. Have you have you seen The Dark Backward? I know. Okay. It's the Brad? same. It's <laughs> Yeah, Crad. Have you seen Crad? It's the same writer-director guy. who He's done some other things. Those are the ones that I know. The Dark Backward is it's a movie where uh, Judd Nelson and uh, oh, and uh, Bill Paxton are like garbage men in a weird, horrible garbage world. And Judd Nelson is at like 10% the whole time and is so sweaty and sad and wants to do stand-up comedy and then grows an arm out of his back. It's like... It's kind of weird and funny. It's worth a watch. Uh, it's definitely okay. the first two thirds are a lot stronger than the last third, but it's it's definitely worth a watch. Anyway, it's that same writer director, so he definitely is like gunning to make some some weirdo stuff. He's trying uh, to do a thing. He's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. There's an intent behind it, that nose. Yeah, it wasn't just somebody <laughs> cast Nicolas Cage in a and he showed up with a weird rubber nose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No. Like, well, he made a choice, and we're over budget, so. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that is maybe a reasonable place for us to end. Yeah. Uh, it's just proclaiming our, our love for Nicolas Cage yeah. and our protectiveness into it. Those who would proclaim to love him, but maybe don't really give him the credit that he's due. Yeah. Like uh, people who love him, but don't he, respect him. <laughs> granted is 90% his own fault. Sure. Sure. But sure. the other 10% is people who they just, they don't, they don't see what's happening. Yeah. So sad. We we should do at some point a Francis Ford Coppola rundown where we talk about yes. how the movies that people say are great are fine and the movies that people don't care about are awesome. Yeah, and then like right in the middle, we're gonna have the our our like low point on the Dan Harmon story circle is gonna be contending with Jack. Oh yeah, yes. Oh great. <laughs> and we will come through changed. Yeah, although. Rewatching Jack means I'll be rewatching movie with Bill Cosby in it, and I haven't done. Oh, it. that'll be hard. Ooh, yeah. I don't know how I'm going to feel about that. Yeah, I was listening to um, related in an obvious way. I was like, I was listening to Eddie, uh, not Eddie, um, Barry Crimmins, mm-hmm. uh, his last, his first and last special, uh-huh. um, and I'd forgotten that Louis C.K. I guess produced it. Oh. And paid for it. Sure. Back in you know it was before his uh, his his fall. Sure. Uh, he had it was one of the things. That yeah, because he, he was doing on. that for a minute. He was producing a ton of stand up. Yeah, or at least these these you know in, in retrospect you think well he produced Tig and sure he produced Barry Crimmins and is he maybe taking these people who are you know at least on a subconscious level is he maybe picking people who are really useful shields for any potential <laughs> thing that comes up because. You know, Tig sure. Charles, this you know phenomenal uh, feminist lesbian yeah. comic who's really intelligent, and Barry Crimmins has done so much work uh, against um, pedophilia and yeah. sex abuse. So, right. uh, not that I'm saying Lucy is a pedophile, but you know, I'm just saying right, right. <laughs> related issues of uh, of you know consent, but. I don't, I don't. I don't want to talk about Louis C.K. I don't know why I ended up there. Um, the only reason I was bringing it up is because I was listening to the special, and right at the beginning, he doesn't say his name, he doesn't say anything like that. But Louis is introducing him. Oh. And uh, I guess he probably did like five minutes or something at this top or whatever. I don't sure, know if, yeah. if he opened for him or what. 
but it's just the, the first thing on the CD is Louis introducing Barry um, and talking about like booking him in the in the place. And it took me a second to be like, I know that voice. <laughs> oh shit! Because I haven't heard his voice in years now. Sure. Yeah. You know, I just and I you know I've avoided it. Yeah, of course. Um, and then I just to end up hearing it for a second, it's like, oh, oh yeah. No, there's no point to that story other than it just happened the other day. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard when you're hit with these people that like used to. Be, I don't want to say important, but used to be like a part of your media diet, and now you've intentionally cut them out. I, I mean, I'm pretty mad because I would say both of those guys were pretty important to me. Yeah, that's uh, fair. That's fair. You know, uh, and it's, I, I, Cosby was obviously the more. Uh, well, yeah, he was like an uncle your whole life. Important. Um, but Louis the one that. Well, you know what? Both of them hurt in, in an everyday fashion because so many just like verbal ticks and responses to mm. things that mm-hmm. I have mm-hmm. are borrowed from their acts. Sure. And now anytime that I go <laughs> to do that, I stop and just get sad. Yeah. 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 You're like, Oh, I stole this from a creep. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a bummer. Um, but, but Barry Crimmins was great. Yeah. What a hero. That guy. He should still be alive. Yeah. Guys. Agreed. I missed the last, uh, I think the last public thing he did was a birth, he, there was a birthday party for him just down the street from where I live. Really? Um, but it was right after Gus was born. Oh. And I, I was like thinking about going and then I just couldn't get up. Sure. So. I and you were, cause you were like, ah, oh, Barry Kremens, he'll be around forever. Yeah. I just, something, I just, I, I just made the calculation in the moment of like, I just. Yeah, of break course. Something. Yeah. Either physically or mentally, if sure. I try to go out to this, and, you know, regrets. What are yeah. you gonna do? Nothing. Just have them. Yeah. You know, forever. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Synesthesia is produced by Iguana Donald Studios and distributed by Split Tooth Media. Featuring music by The Cocktails, courtesy of Tideship Records. Theme music by Soft Healer. Synesthesia is sorry if this isn't going right, we've never done this before. Is that how it's supposed to feel? What about that? Oh no. Oh, sorry. We'll get you some ointment. Wait, does he show up with a nose? Synesthesia.